As we get started, um, I want to start by uh, mentioning a few announcements. Uh, starting October 26th, every other Tuesday, we're going to have a prayer meeting. We'll be meeting at the Campbell's house. Um, they live over off of um, Pine Street, uh, right there off of Russell Street in Ironton. So it'll be every other Tuesday from 6 to 7 p.m. starting October 26th. Um, we don't know exactly how it's going to look. It's going to be informal. It'll be an hour of prayer, and then uh, we'll all disperse. But I think it'd be a good step of faith for us to pray together as a church. Um, secondly, we have Daniel Messiah, who is a, uh, a Muslim who converted to Christianity back in the 80s and uh, actually suffered prison time. He was living in, in Egypt at the time. So if you want to come hear him share his story and also... Uh, he, his heart is to equip believers to share their faith, particularly with Muslims, uh, but more than that, whoever God brings across your path. He, he, um, he's a bold man, and he uh, is an exhorter, uh, but he also uh, is what I would call a Christian of biblical proportions, which we all should be, but sometimes we need to hear testimony from somebody who is to be emboldened. And so I would encourage you to, to join us for that Saturday, November 7th at 6.30 p.m. It'll be on a Saturday night uh, at 6.30. So, um, huh? Like I said, November 6th. No, no, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm just acting like I said it right. Thank you, Aunt Mary. No, like I said, November 6th. And all the people said amen. All right. Thank you. I, I'll have to get a hold of first service and be like, hey, I lied to you. I'm sorry. Um, and then the youth will be meeting again tonight from 5 to 7 p.m. Um, and they're going to finish their four-week series on uh, known. Uh, right? Our, our true identity. And so um, if you have youth, I would encourage them to come out. Usually there's a game time, usually there's a study time, and usually there's just hangout time. So uh, I think it's a great opportunity, and I know those that lead our youth uh, spend time preparing a specific message, so it'll be good. So if you want to, turn in your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to grab one from the, one of the seats in front of you. But we will be in Exodus chapter 18 this morning. And we're going to be looking at uh, this next phase in this new nation. Uh, this new nation really is a nation that started back in Genesis in chapter 12, where God makes promises to a man by the name of Abraham, who had a wife who was not able to conceive. And when she was very old, God gave her a son by the name of Isaac. And through all the nations of the world, God promised to bless uh, through Isaac, those who Bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed, is what God's word was to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, who would be eventually be called Israel. And then the nation of Israel has spent 400 years, Exodus tells us 430 years to be particular, in Egypt as slaves, and God has birthed them out of the slavery of Egypt and brought them out of the land of Egypt to become a nation. And so for this nation, we've seen him in previous weeks provide uh, bread, which is kind of essential to maintaining life, and then uh, water last week. But where did he provide the bread from? Heaven. He dropped it in the dew on the ground. They were to gather it, to bake it, to boil it, and it would be what would sustain them in the desert. And then when they started to complain because there was nothing to drink, God said, I'm going to provide for them water from the rock. Interestingly enough, Jesus Christ, the rock, the cornerstone of our faith, through whom pours the Holy Spirit into our lives. He sends the Holy Spirit when he leaves, and now we have living water to live spiritually. But for them, it was a very practical, real thing. They were thirsting in the desert, so God pours out water to them. So now that they have food, now that they have water, now that they're staying alive, all their problems are gone, right? Wrong. Because you know as well as I do, when our practical needs are met, we start worrying about other needs. We start to argue with each other. 
We start to fight about boundaries. We start to say, hey, who's in charge here? And, and we start to try to set the pecking order. Well, the Lord here, by his grace, has allowed them to continue for several months. But now that they have survived possible famine, God's provided for them, and then thirsting. And then if you remember from last week's chapter, they actually got attacked by some of the people of the land called the Amalekites, the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. And the Amalekites, when they attacked them, God gave wisdom to Moses to draw up some soldiers to go and fight the physical battle while Moses took two men and they went up from a higher perspective and they prayed. And as he kept his hands up, they prevailed against their enemies. God delivered them victoriously from those who would seek to shut them down and to kill them. And so as they've won this battle, they come back to um, where they're at. And God says, I'm going to send you some more wisdom, Moses, because now we're in a new chapter in our journey. They're maturing as a nation. And so God's going to develop in them some government and some structure. And so in Exodus chapter 18, it says, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, with her two sons of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the, fair, from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, there's the third time he said that, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. And so Moses is reunited with his family. Uh, Jethro, by the way, the best father-in-law name ever, Jethro. I mean, come on, there's bands. Um, They they also didn't go to California and find oil or something. There was a TV show. Wasn't his name Jethro? Am I wrong? Uh, Anyway, so there you go. There's there's my lack of trivia knowledge. But Jethro brought Moses, wife, and his kids back, which is interesting because my assumption had always been God called him from the burning bush, sent him into Egypt, which was basically into the fire, into the battle, to bring his people back out of slavery. Moses had already escaped from there. But it seems as though while he was in Egypt that he did not, in fact, take his wife and his two sons. Which is interesting because there's a, there's a text in Exodus 4 where Moses has heard the call at the burning bush. He takes his family with him, and as they're headed towards Egypt, it says that the Lord's just about to kill Moses, which is weird because we're like, why is he about to kill him? He's doing what he's supposed to do. But we find out through the narrative that he had not circumcised his sons. So he hadn't been fully obedient. And then for whatever reason, that deters them from going into the land with Moses. So they circumcise the boys. Actually, Zipporah does it. And she's like, you're a husband of blood to me, Moses. And you can imagine the contempt in her voice. But she takes care of what he did not. And it seems as though from this point on, Jethro takes care of his family, takes them away so that Moses and Aaron can go into the land and actually do what God's called them to do. And there are seasons in life where God changes the family structure for safety. And in this case, they're going into the battle, and so God does this by the hand of his father-in-law. So Moses' boys' names, Gershom, which means sojourner, and Eleazar, which means servant or helper, are names that were names that Moses had given to his sons to remember his time in Midian. You remember, Moses was in trouble. He was raised in Pharaoh's house. And, and knowing that God had called him somehow intrinsically to be a deliverer for his people, noticed that a Hebrew was being beaten by a slave driver. 
and he got personally involved and he killed that slave driver, buried him in the sand, and then the next day he was found out to be a murderer. And so then at that point, knowing there's a mark on his head, he flees a fugitive from the land of Egypt and he goes to a place called Midian and he stays there for 40 years. And while he is there, he meets this Jethro, or in this case, he was called Rule. He's got multiple names. But while he was there, he meets this man and he marries his daughter. And while he gets married, he then has fruit from his marriage two sons, and he names them, interestingly enough, things that he wants to remember about the desert. He names them Gershom, saying, while I was in the desert, while I was in Midian, I was a foreigner. And then he also names them, the second one, he names Eleazar. And there it says in verse 4, for he said, the God of my father was my help, past tense, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Now, you might be tempted to think about that and go, yeah, God's, he's remembering back to God delivering the nation from the sword of Pharaoh. Remember, the Israelites were chased by the Egyptians into the dry seabed, and then the Lord miraculously dropped the ocean, the Red Sea, over the top of their heads, stopping their enemies from overtaking them. But that's not what this is about. He named them before that ever happened. He named them when he was in Midian. So this was the second time that God had delivered him miraculously from the sword of Pharaoh. So you might say that Moses actually has already experienced an exodus before he experiences another one with the nation. Because here we have, he named his sons about his time in Midian, but it turns out that those names even become prophetic about God, what God was planning to do when he sent him to be the deliverer for the Israelites. And so Moses returns to the Midian area here in today's passage. And so his father-in-law brings his wife and his two sons back to him, verse 5 and 6. So verse 7 says, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed down and he kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being and they went into the tent. Now, I know all of you greet your father-in-law with a kiss, right? Yeah, absolutely not. You know, you get the beard bristle, and, you know, he smells funny. And, but, but all kidding aside, that's how they would greet one another in the Middle East. It was common. And it's interesting, too, because Paul writes in one of his letters to the churches, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, and so this was a common thing. He's not, it's, there's nothing weird involved. Those who have a perverted idea of holiness would ascribe something else to this. But what we have here is he's greeting his father-in-law in a respectful way. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and he humbled himself before the greater. He bowed down to his father-in-law and he kissed him. Now, what's interesting about this is if we in the law, later we'll see that God says to his people, honor your mother and father, and if you will do so, you'll live long in the land. It will be good for you if you'll live respectful among them. Now, that doesn't always mean that they are respectable, but that doesn't mean that we can't honor them with how we treat them. So they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. They, they caught up, you might say. So in verse 7, we see them fellowshipping together. They're asking, how you been? How's it going? And then they greet each other and they treat each other with honor. Verse eight says, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. He told them all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So then Jethro, verse nine, rejoiced at this word. So Jethro has heard secondhand, this is what God has done for Israel. And so he brings, the, his, he brings Moses' family back. But when he gets there, he doesn't want to just hear what somebody else has to say. He wants to hear it for himself. He wants to hear it from Moses. So Moses shares the story as well. And Jethro, having heard it a second time, he's not tired of hearing the story. Instead, he rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. You can imagine Jethro is kind of proud of his son-in-law. 
You know, he, he's, he's giving the glory to God, but he's proud of his son. He, he's got a son in the faith. He's got a son because of who his daughter is married. So Jethro here rejoices for all the good which the Lord had done. Verse 10, Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people of Israel under the hand of the Egyptians or from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, speaking of uh, the Egyptians, he was above them. God was above the circumstances. So then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so Moses has more than a father-in-law here. Moses has somebody that's kind of a cheerleader in his life. But he's not cheering Moses. He's just celebrating what God has done in Moses' life. But what's interesting here is that when Jethro shows up, Moses doesn't say, hey, check out what I've done. He says, look what God did. Look at this thing that's taken place that only God could do. Moses isn't a big man. He's not a burly man. He's not a military leader. He was actually raised in soft conditions. He was taken out to the desert, made a shepherd by himself, and then he's brought to shepherd the people of Israel out. But I don't care how good of a shepherd you are, two million people is too much for any one man to lead. And yet what God does miraculously so that only he can get the glory as he does what is seemingly impossible. And so he tells the story. Moses simply recounts, here's what God did. And the result of that, his father-in-law starts to worship. When you tell the story correctly, when you recount God's faithfulness correctly, it will cause the praise of God to multiply. People will have no other choice than to give glory to God to celebrate. And what's interesting here is that in the Christian walk, by the way, Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he said, I'm going to, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. I'm going to turn there so I don't misquote this passage. But it says there, Jesus, before he ascended, he said in verse 7 of Acts chapter 1, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you, he doesn't say you will go witnessing, he says you shall be witnesses. You will bear witness to the truth in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So wherever you are, you're going to be a memorial. I don't care how many memorials get torn down in our nation. I don't care how many times they take down the Ten Commandments. If you, filled with the Holy Spirit, testify to what Jesus has done in your life, you're the pillar. You're the memorial. You're the statue. You're the reminder to people that God's real and he's at work today, not just back in the day. Okay? You are God's witness. And does that mean that you will go and share witness and testify and share with people you don't know? Hopefully, because we bear the truth. And if it's the truth today, and if it saved us, and it's the only cause for the cure of, of spiritual cancer, which is sin, then guess what? We better share that thing. So the reality is, whether or not you go witnessing, your life should become naturally a witness. Just like a tree that's planted in an orchard produces fruit because of what it is. By the fact that you are Jesus' disciples, your fruit, the fruit that you bear will be works, but it will also be a testimony. Tell it. Don't get tired of it. Share it. Or what did God do in your life this week? Share that with each other after service. And if you'll do that, guess what's going to happen? People are going to worship. 
It's not just when we're singing. People worship. There's so many times I hear people's story after service, and I'm like, thank you, Lord. (laughs) By the way, that's a worship song. Thank you, Lord. It's got so good. And so fellowship happened, testimony happened, and then as they went, they become witnesses. And so what's interesting is worship happens. 9 through 12, we see Jethro's response to what he hears. Number one, verse nine, he rejoices. Just within himself, he's just rejoicing. Verse 10, he blesses God. He confesses, God, you're so good. Uh, Now I know, he already knew, but he's saying, now I know that you're the only God who, who raises himself up above those that are lesser. Verse 11, he exalts God's character. He professes, God truly is the only good one. Verse uh, 12, he offers sacrifices to God. A natural response to truly believing that God is who he says he is, by the way, is we're willing to sacrifice what he gives us. We're willing to burn it up. And, and I don't just mean possessions or money. I mean time, effort. We give him our strength. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul, give him praise. The first fruits of our lip is a sacrifice. But then he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and with the strength that you have. Some of you don't feel like you got much strength. You're like, well, I don't have anything to give. Maybe you're, you're, you're not of stature where you can lift things. That doesn't mean you can't give him your possessions. And vice versa, that doesn't mean that you giving your possessions don't have to give him your sweat. Use the sweat of your brow to praise God. But we all have something to offer, and a sacrifice always costs the worshiper. Serving God will cost you. It's worth it. Any sacrifice worth giving that costs, by the way, it it helps you to lay up your treasure in heaven. So he offers sacrifices to God, and then, verse 12, he shares a meal with the elders and with Aaron. Now, we might be quickly uh, look over this and not, not really catch what's going on here. But in the Middle East, signing a peace treaty means nothing. But when you eat a meal with somebody, if you break a loaf and one of you eats a piece of this loaf and the other eats the same piece of that same loaf, you see that on TV between two Middle Easterners? They, they mean it because they do not eat with each other lightly. That's why the Pharisees were always mad at Jesus. Remember Matthew, the tax collector? He, he, Jesus says to him, follow me. He says, okay, I want to be your disciple. And then he, they, he has a feast at his house that night. And who's there? Well, what's Matthew? He's a tax collector. Who's he going to be friends with? Well, the Jews hated him. Maybe he's going to be friends with tax collectors. So he has a partay. He has food. He, he, he feeds everybody that wants to come and eat, including Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees show up like they always do. Haters going to hate. And they show up and they go, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why? Because to partake in the same food with someone that was deplorable or someone that was against Israel or someone that was, ugh, sinner was to say with them, I'm your brother. We're family now. And in the Middle East, if you eat a meal together, it doesn't mean that you're just like acquaintances. It means we're now family. That's why communion is so important. And that's why the Pharisees were so upset because what Jesus was communicating is I am the friend of sinners. And they hated that because they spent their whole life being righteous so they could be a friend of God. In the meantime, these sinners show up and God shows them grace. He gives them what they don't deserve. That makes, that makes self-righteous people mad every time. Every time. So they eat a meal together. Verse 13. Kind of got off script there, but I thought it needed to be said. Verse 13. So it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. So his family's coming to town. Now he's, he's still got to go to work on Monday. So he sits 
to judge the people, verse 13, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. And so Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, and he said, what's this thing that you're doing for all the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? What's going on here? He's new to this scene. He's new to this practice. He says, what are you doing? So he's observing what Moses is doing, and then he starts to ask questions. By the way, if somebody wants to be a counselor for you, and they've never watched what you do and ask questions, then they're not going to be able to really relate to what you do. Any advice they give is going to be based on solely on what they think before they've seen the circumstances. But here he observes what Moses is doing. He asks questions. What, why are you doing what you're doing? I see what you're doing, but what's the original intended purpose for this practice of sitting before these people? Now, you can imagine what Moses is seeing here is that he's, he's seeing basically a DMV experience. And everybody's favorite place is to go to the DMV because you got to update your plates or they got new plates. So now you got to get new plates or you got to get your license. It's expired. And so you got the little thing in the mail or you didn't get it in the mail. You got a ticket. Now you got to go to the DMV. Nobody in the DMV, by the way, is happy. The guy that owns the thing is not happy because he can only make so much money and he's going to make you angry because he doesn't have enough workers and you pick the tab and so you're 16 and there's 14 people in front of you or 15 people. And so it's not a fun experience. Now, we think that at the DMV, but we didn't have one worker and 2 million people showing up only because they have problems. So Moses sits there. He hears the people's problems. He goes back to the tent of meeting. He prays and says, Lord, I don't know what to do. The Lord tells him. He instructs them on how to deal with their dispute. And then, okay, now number two. And then now number three. And who knows how long Moses has to wait in the tent of meeting before the Lord gives wisdom, right? And so Moses is doing this. His father-in-law sees it And he says, what is this thing that you're doing? In verse 15, Moses said to his father-in-law, well, because the people come to me to inquire of God, I represent the Lord to them. And so the Lord speaks to me divine wisdom and I give it back after they give me their problems. And when they have a difficulty, they come to me. I judge between one and another. He's settling disputes. This is like going to court. And I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. And so Moses' father-in-law very graciously listens to the understanding. And in verse 17, he says something very short and to the point. This is not good. This is not good. He says, uh, Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Thanks for that. Where were you 20 minutes ago when I started this process? Um, You could imagine, I I don't, maybe you guys receive correction way better than I do. But I get to doing something and I get into a rhythm and it's how I do it. It, It's the, I didn't go into it haphazardly. I thought through it. I, I reasoned, what's the best way to handle this? Here's what's before me. Here's what I know to do. Here's what I'm gonna do. And then I start doing it. And then somebody comes along who's been here five minutes and says, that's not the way you should do it. You guys love correction like that, right? I don't. Even though I'm supposed to be godly, I don't like correction. And I'm growing in that. But Moses has been doing this, and I bet he's frustrated because he's thinking the same thing. I don't know how to do this better, but this is all I know to do. So Jethro shows up, who is his father-in-law, And he says, this isn't a good thing. He says, both you and these people who are with you surely will wear yourselves out. This thing is too much for you, Moses. You're not able to perform it by yourself. He's not saying that the process isn't good. He's saying the way that they're doing the process is probably not great. He says, maybe there's another way which if you've ever been doing the same thing over and over again, but always expecting different results, 
you're just doing, you're just trying to get by. You're not trying to improve it because you don't have time to improve it. You're busy. But the Lord graciously sends Jethro and Jethro says, hey, this isn't good. Have you considered a different way? And I love this because we get to see the heart of Moses. I would have had a little come apart and probably went on a rant. But Moses must have had a special relationship with Jethro because he doesn't do that. He actually receives the criticism and says, okay, so what should I do instead? And in verse 18, he says, the the people that you're serving, though you're serving them well, they're going to grow weary in this process. They're going to get tired of waiting in the DMV. Maybe we need to get them some quicker answers. Uh, The job is too heavy a burden for you to handle by yourself. So verse 19, listen now to my voice, Jethro says. I will give you counsel or advice and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. So you're doing something right, I think. You need to continue to hear the burdens of the people and bear them before the Lord. Hear the burdens, but don't be burdened yourself. Take the burden and hand it to the Lord. Pray for the people. This is a good thing. Verse 20, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. So you're doing two things right here, Moses. He starts with what I would call the, uh, the crud sandwich, you know, like the correction sandwich. Give some things they're doing right, and then in the middle, give the criticism, and the end by saying, you're doing great, keep going. And that's a management technique that I think the Lord actually came up with. But what he does here, he says, here's some things that are going really good. The two things I think you need to keep doing is bearing the burdens before the Lord. Represent the people to God. Pray for them. That's, by the way, we think that's the last thing. Well, don't know what to do. I guess we need to pray. What else can we do? Actually, that's the first thing we should do. But then he says, instruct them in God's law. The instructions, Torah, uh, that just means instructions. Instruct them in God's ways. Teach them the way. Jesus said to his disciples, I am the way, the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, the way. So if there's a way to live, we need to know what it is. He says, spend your time praying and spend your time instructing. All other things, hearing these small matters, uh, delegate. And, and you know this, in your life, there are certain things you have time for, and then there's this overflow of there's too much to do. So how do we still get everything done when we only can do so much? Delegation. Pastor David Guzik writes in his commentary, the delegation is actually exercising leadership. It's not abandoning it. To, to delegate is, is wise. And one particular benefit they're going to see right up front is that there will be quicker resolutions. And if you've ever been involved, maybe in a call to a telecommunications company, maybe the one that has their, their uh, communications centralized in a call center and some other unknown, undisclosed location, when a company becomes so big, you call in and you have to hit five, then you got to hit three, and then you got to wait. And then you got to hit four, and then you got to leave a voicemail because we'll call you back. We don't have time for you right now, but we'll call you back. And sometimes that call comes back the same day when you don't have time. That's why you called when you did. And sometimes you get that response a week later, and sometimes two weeks. And sometimes, believe it or not, this happens in churches. We become so committee-driven We become so organizationally driven. Everything has to go through one person. And so therefore, we never get any answers because that one person is so busy, they don't have time to answer everybody's emails, texts, phone calls, visit the people that are sick, all those things. So how do we get past this? Because the needs of the people are there and they're real and they need real-time responses. Well, one benefit is that they'll get quick resolutions the way that Jethro is going to suggest there will be less of a line at the DMV, you might say. Verse 21, he says, moreover, 
So you should spend your time praying and studying the word and teaching the word. Verse 21, moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God. So select from among the people men who are capable of doing what you do, those who have these qualifications. They need to be those who first and foremost fear the Lord. They love the truth, men of truth, men who have character that's full of truthfulness. Those who hate covetousness, which means they hate bribes. They're not ruled by someone lining their pocket. And place these who have these characteristics over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So divide and conquer. Uh, Shepherd the sheep with multiple shepherds and let them judge the people at all times. And then it will be that every great matter, the big stuff, stuff that has to go past small claims court, you might say, every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. And so it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. And so we see here what I would call the Moses model. And it actually wasn't his idea. We'll call it the Jethro model. Uh, Select able men from among the congregation who love the Lord. They fear God. They they live in the karamdeo, in the the constant presence of God, knowing that nothing is outside of his sight. They're submitted to him and his authority. They're honest and they hate bribes or what the King James calls filthy lucre, uh, dirty money. Uh, or, or prominence or place of position, whatever they might be controlled by. And then make these men leaders over smaller portions of the whole group. And then let them serve and lead the people. And when they come across something, they're not quite sure, what is, how do we handle this as a church? What does the Bible say about this? We don't know. And then they bring it up a level and say, hey, we want to handle this well, but we're not sure what the Lord's will is on it. And then at that point, Moses can deal with that, but not every little decision. You know, there's a lot of decisions to be made with in the church. And I think it makes a lot of people mad because there's a lot of things in the Bible that are actually gray areas. They're not hills to die on. There are very few, by the way, things that are required of the New Testament church. But when it comes to the things that we need to grip tightly, there are things we need to hold the party line, you might say. But all of this is to multiply the work so that the, so that the in this case, so that the Israelite nation can be more streamlined, not more complicated, not more bureaucratic. And I love this because in the New Testament church, we see this same example followed. Uh, we as a church, by the way, we don't, we're not congregationally led. We won't have uh, meetings where we're all here arguing over stuff. We just won't because I don't see it in scripture, uh, frankly. Uh, but we also are not, uh, there's, there's other styles of leadership. There's bishops uh, where basically the, the, the pastor is in, in leadership. And then there's also those where it's elder led. That's where we get the eye of the presbytery. But what we practice here is more of what we would call, now I'm going to call it the Jethro model, where basically there's one leader, but then that leader is assisted by all the other elders. And we call it a board here, but we pray together each week. And if there's things we're not sure about how to move forward, we pray together until God gives us unity, and then we move forward. But most of the time, individual ministries, we don't want to be micromanagers. By the way, you heard me say that every job I ever worked at, every stinking boss said to me, I don't want to be a micromanager, but every single one of them. So it takes faith, right? Because everybody says that in formality, but they don't actually practice it because we think if we have control, then it'll be better. But the idea of this type of government is that we want Jesus to be in control because he's the head of the church. We know that he's given gifts to each one of you to fulfill your calling. And though there are some things that affect the whole body, 
There's a lot of freedom in Christ to do what he's called you to do the way that he's called you to do it. And if you're ever in doubt, feel free to ask. But a lot of the time, I'm going to tell you, let it rip. That sounds awesome. The only time you're going to hear from me is I'm going to see you going zealous and go, oh, maybe we need to hit the brakes on this. I like what you're doing, but the way we're going about it isn't how we do things here. But I literally want to, I want to become better at giving away ministry, not hoarding it. And, and we're seeing that happen. And as we consider the, the fact that God has grown us as a, as a body in the last couple of years, miraculously during a pandemic, what I want to encourage you in is that if God is calling you to something and you feel like, well, we don't really have this and I kind of have a burden for it, bring it up. Bring it up because there, if you're not going to do it, you're going to rob us and, and we're going to rob you of being walking in that calling. But there's a lot of things that we don't do well yet because many of you are being called, but you're not there yet. I want to encourage you in that. Exercise what God gives you to do and we will do as much as we can to be your cheerleaders and maybe sometimes to have Jethro talks. You know, And so with that being the case, God raised up in a practical case in Acts chapter 6, a problem arose. In the early church, it had just started. It was only five chapters old. That's not an amount of time. But in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, which is where we found ourselves in the last couple of years, there arose a complaint against a certain group. Uh, there was Hebrews and there was Hellenists, and they were culturally just different. And they didn't see things the same way. And they hadn't quite gelled as one in Christ yet. And there was a group, the Hellenists, that their widows, the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. They were taking care of widows and orphans. They had a food pantry and they had people that distributed the food. And the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it, look, guys, uh, we're supposed to be praying and teaching the word. It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. We're trying to take care of the spiritual needs, but the practical needs are still there. And so, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, those who fear God and are truthful, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer, to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose seven men who, guess what? Represented the group that felt slighted. They were Hellenistic Jews. And if you look at their names, they were more Greek names than they were Hebrew names. Nicanor and Philip and Prochorus and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. So they were from other places whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they prayed over them first, and then they laid hands on them, which is what they would do to give authority to a, a person. And then the word of God, notice this, a fruit of them dividing the labor, a fruit of them giving away ministry. The word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. So this was in the day when the disciples were multiplying. But after the division of labor that they just did, recognizing callings and practicalities and spiritualities and, and just following some good sound advice, the word of God spread and the number of the disciples that had been multiplying multiplied greatly. <laughs> That's an adjective. They're describing that it actually grew even more. And so they multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests obedient to the faith. Their unity and the way they serve one another and the, the organization of it all being led by the Spirit actually led to some of the Jewish priests. Think about Nicodemus. Think about uh, Caiaphas and the ones that opposed Jesus. Uh, we don't know what priests, but the priests in the day of this early church, they were won over to the faith in Jesus because of the organization that happened within the body of Christ. Souls were saved because of the unity and the functionality of the body of Christ and how simple it was. And that's, that's our goal. We want things to be as simple as they can be within what's going on. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, 
Take what you've learned from me and commit them to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That what we learn from Jesus and from each other, we can actually make a deposit into the account of the next generation. If you're looking at the next generation of the Christian church and you're like, man, there's no hope. It's going down like Hades. Then it's your fault. I'm putting the blame in your laps. But I'm also saying, go and teach others what you have been taught so that the body of Christ can continue to, to flourish and thrive. We're all called to teach in some way or another. And then the leadership qualities that are there in Acts chapter 6 are actually uh, gotten more specific about in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. You can read that on your own. So here's why Jethro's advice was given. He says there in verse 23, if you do this thing, God, and if, it's, if God wills it, Jethro is not saying, I'm God, I speak for him, you do this. He's not an authoritarian. He says, here's the deal. Here's what I think is best. And if God so agrees with that and he commands you to do so, here's what's going to happen. Then you will be able to endure and all this people will go to their place in peace. There will be peace amongst the brethren. You're not able to perform all this by yourself. You and these people will wear each other out. That was his word. It's too much for you alone. But if you followed my advice, and if the Lord agrees with it, you will be able to endure. This governing style will be sustainable. This is something that you can continue in and not be worn out. And look at this. The people will dwell together in peace amongst one another. And, and Jesus said, by the way, that this would be an earmark of the body of Christ, that people will know that you're my disciples, Jesus said, by your love for one another, by how you dwell together. It's not going to be because you all agree on every little minutia of culture and politics and all the other things. It will be because you love one another. And so uh, part of loving one another is having some sort of order that we can dwell together uh, in unity. So verse 24 says, So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law, and he did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses. But they judged every small case themselves. They didn't need Moses for every little thing. And then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. So what makes Jethro a reliable source for wisdom? There's a lot of voices in your lives right now, right? Mine too. Which one am I supposed to listen to? And which one can I reject biblically? You know, there's a lot of, everybody tell me what to do. How do I know what voices to chew on and receive and how do I know which voices are bones that I should spit out? And I believe that everybody that teaches you something probably has some meat and probably has some bones. I always tell people when I give them a book to read, chew on the meat, spit out the bones. The Lord give you a discernment. Well, that's the case with anybody that gives us advice. That's the case with every voice that's trying to tell you things right now. There are voices that are meant for good, and there are voices by, by the enemy's design that are meant to confuse and cause chaos. How do I divide between what's true and what's false? Well, notice that Jethro had authority to speak into Moses' life, number one, because he knew Moses for many years. This wasn't some stranger showing up going, hey, here's what I think you should do. That happens to me all the time as a pastor. Everybody's got an opinion. They're like belly buttons. Everybody's got an opinion, but they never, but belly buttons, what are they even there for, right? I mean, we know what they're there for, but do you guys think Moses had one? Oh, it's one of those questions. But he knew Moses for many years. He also lived with Moses for many years. For 40 years, he dwelled in the desert and Moses worked for Jethro. So he was a former employee. But notice also Jethro, he's a shepherd by trade. Uh, what does it take to train someone to rule over 2 million people? Uh, maybe a shepherd would be a good place to start. 
That's where David got his feet wet. He was a shepherd. He cared personally for Moses. Jethro did. Now, he had a little bit of skin in the game. Why did he care about Moses? Because <laughs> he married his daughter, right? But that's okay. That means that he cares about Moses more than just this moment. He cares about the long term for Moses. He cares, he cares about Moses' family life. He also has outside perspective. You ever tried to make a decision or get wisdom when you're in the heat of a moment? You can't always see things clearly. There's too much dust in the air. There's too much pressure. Well, Moses, or Jethro is not in the middle of the pressure. He can come along and go and see things clearly. But Moses also got advice from Jethro because Jethro had witnessed God's hand in Moses' life, and he was someone who gave God glory. Look for people that give God glory if you're going to look for somebody that gives you wisdom. Because if they give God glory, they're looking towards multiplying his glory. They care about what God receives in the process. They're not going to be doing it so they can get something out of it. James chapter 3, the last reference I'm going to go to today. In verse 13, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? And that's really the question, right? Who's wise around me? Who, who can I take advice from? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. If you want to know if somebody is wise among you, look at the fruit from their life. Let them show by their conduct. Give them some time. Paul would later write about choosing deacons and elders. He says, don't choose anybody that you barely know. Let them live their life in front of you and you can judge the fruit that's there. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly and sensual and demonic. Their wisdom should not be self-seeking. You notice in verse 27, that it says that Jethro departs after that. So he's not even going to stick around to see if it plays out well. He's not in it for his seeking his own. He's in there for the benefit of others. He says where envy and self-seeking exist, there's confusion and every evil thing. But the wisdom that's from above is first pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. Jethro was gentle today. It's willing to yield. If the Lord agrees, if the Lord is willing, then if you follow my advice, it'll go good for you. Full of mercy and good fruit. It's not partial. It's impartial. It's without partiality. And it's without hypocrisy. See, Jethro was somebody that Moses had also watched his life. If he had given him advice that he wasn't following himself, probably Moses is going to go, well, that sounds great, but you don't even do that, right? And so uh, Jethro, ironically, or interestingly enough, probably wasn't somebody that said, do as I say, not as I do. We have to be careful of that. So the question becomes, who do you allow to advise you? Who's your greatest advisor? I want to do one of my little cool things where I go, bam. And then, bam. By the way, look at the description I gave you of Jethro today. It, it describes Jesus in your life. Jesus has known you for many, many years. By the way, before your parents did, and before you were conceived, before you were born, he knew you. Psalm 139. He lived with and employed you. If you didn't know Jesus when you got your first job, you were working for him whether you realize it or not. Uh, the most ungodly people in the world, by the way, they serve at the behest of the king. Jethro is a shepherd. So is Jesus. He's the good shepherd, by the way. He cares personally for you. And he cares personally not only for you, but for those who are under your shepherdship. He cares about your family, men. That's why he wants to lead you. It's not just about you. It's about those that you influence. Uh, he cares personally, but he also has outside perspective. He's our great high priest. He knows our burdens. He bears them before the Father. And his vision, by the way, is never affected by pressure. And if you question that, Jesus was being murdered. He was being crushed. And he was completely sober in judgment. He even took care of his mother. He told John, he said, hey, woman, behold your son. He made sure she was cared for during his death. Not after, not before, during. 
He has clear wisdom and vision. And also, Jesus has seen God the Father's hand in your life, and he gives God the glory. He says, I come to do the will of my Father who sent me. Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. And yet, he didn't even take the glory to himself. So the question is, are you willing to let him advise you? Are you willing to let him shepherd your heart? Are you willing to let his voice be louder than even your closest peers who you think know you better? Let his Holy Spirit advise you in those quiet moments. When you're the most distressed, look to him for wisdom. We don't even have to go through Moses. We don't have to go through one of Moses' able men. We get to go straight into the Holy of Holies and say, Lord, I need to meet with you because my life has got me distressed. It's, it's got me overwhelmed. It's got me overrun. How do I handle these circumstances, Lord? And as the good shepherd, his voice is not too quiet that he can't speak into it. Peace be still. So Lord Jesus, we come to you as sheep. And that's not necessarily complimentary to us because sheep are dumb and they can't defend themselves. But as sheep, and as you have called us, we need a shepherd. And so, Father, thank you for Jethro, who is just this type of the Holy Spirit, and Moses being this type of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us wisdom in our daily needs. Help us to know who our Jethros are. Help us to know when things are uh, not good. (laughs) The way you're doing this is not good. Lord, tell us that if we need to hear it. Help us not to be those who just wander aimlessly and do the same thing over and over, frustrated, and yet wondering why things aren't changing. Help us to be open to a new move of your spirit. Lord, we love you and we need you to shepherd us, but we also have many that we are influencing. So not only for our sake would you shepherd our hearts, but for the sake of those who we testified before. Would you do mighty acts and mighty works and give us wisdom to lead them for your glory? Lord, we love you, we need you, and we thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen. You unravel me with a melody You surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child. I'm no longer a slave to fear. Oh, I am a child of God. From my mother's womb, you have chosen me. Love has called my name. I've been born again into your family. Your blood flows through my veins. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. You split the sea so I could walk.
you guys. Thank you for coming to worship with us. May the Lord bless your week, give you wisdom, and surround you with many people who can speak into your life on his behest. God bless you guys.